0: Open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to look into this subject of the Bible, how it's come to us in our day. And above all, we're very thankful that you have spoken to us through your word and that we live in a time where we have it readily available to us. So we're very thankful for that. We're thankful for how you have providentially worked down through the ages to bring it to this point and to us in our lives. And we pray that we'll have a greater appreciation for this fact as we study this history of how the Bible has come to us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, Um, this class is, uh, the description of it I had was the study of the origin Preservation, come in, come in, and translation of the Holy Scriptures, concentrating on the history of the English Bible, including comparison of modern translations. So in your notes, the first uh, uh, 20 pages of the uh, 76 pages, so about a fourth, a little over a fourth of this, deals with everything up to the English Bible. So we're spending most of our time on the Bible translated into English. That's what we're mostly interested in, the various translations, how they've come to us, and so forth. But we want to start... Come in. Welcome. We want to start uh, with looking in the first 20 pages at this origin, the translation, you know, the origin especially, and some early translations of the Bible and so we'll do that. So in our notes here on the page one, there's not Mark first page, uh, our first topic is uh, why is the Bible important? It's pretty obvious to all of us because we believe the Bible is the word of God, God speaking to us, and because it's the very word of God, obviously we're interested in how it's come to us and uh, all that's associated with that. Uh, the great, one of the great translators of the English Bible was a man by the name of William Tyndall. And uh, Tyndall, is, we'll study him in detail a little later, but uh, he's noted because he was the first person uh, to translate the Bible into English from the original languages. Uh, the original Greek, the original Hebrew, which is how you'd think you'd want to translate, you know. <clears throat> but those languages, as we'll see, the knowledge of those was sort of lost in the Christian church or not known widely in the West. And so, uh, but by his time, the 16th century, he was the first person to really take on this task of translating the Bible into English. Now, one of the reasons um, he was one of the first persons to do that is because the church, the Roman Catholic Church, forbade translation into the common languages. The Roman Catholic Church used the Latin translation, the Latin Vulgate, and only the clergy were usually educated in the Latin, the scholars. So the average person had no way to know what was in the Bible. All they knew was what the priest told them. Uh, and so they were in total ignorance of really what Scripture said. And so that was what uh, Tyndall uh, decided to do. That, hey, we want to get the Bible into the hands of the average person so they can see what, the, what Scripture really says. And it doesn't teach the things that the Roman Catholic Church says. Well... Didn't go well for him because he was burned at the stake in 1536 for this act of translating the Bible into English. And as I say here, according to John Fox in his Fox Books of Mart- Martyrs, a famous book about Christian martyrs, suppose his last words, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. That was Henry VIII. And, uh, and eventually, that did happen, Henry VIII broke from the Roman Catholic Church and he allowed the Bible to be translated into English as we'll see, which was a tremendous event and uh, started bringing the Bible to the average person you and I and me. So uh, here's Te burn the stake. this is a this is a picture that is found in uh, in some Bibles. Uh, it's, a, it's a wood cut does anybody know what a woodcut is so in the early days of printing if you wanted to print a picture uh, no iPhone take it no way to do it they would actually carve out the picture out of wood they'd have an artist draw on a piece of paper and then they would put that on a piece of wood and kind of make an image on the wood and then somebody would draw out this carving and uh, what was left would be where the ink would hit. And so, and they'd make a carving for, for, for every image you wanted in the Bible. And some of these Bibles had a lot of images, and that was a lot of work. So, there was a special trait of a person who could just cut out this wood using birch to use in the printing process. So, you put it in the press just alongside the type. So, number one and two, uh, we want to talk about. Um, how the Bible uh, how did the Bible become the word of God and that of course is the doctrine of inspiration most of us are familiar with Mm -hmm. Um, let's talk first of all about the definition of the word inspiration itself or the word inspiration Uh, our word inspiration is derived as I say from a Latin word a verb inspiro which uh, was used in the Latin translation of the Bible. So a lot of our English terms come ultimately through Latin because Latin was the universal language of Western Europe for over a thousand years. And uh, the Bible was translated into Latin and then into English. And so a lot of terms were taken from, uh, from Latin. And so uh, the translator of the Latin Bible here, in this case Jerome, Used this word inspiro to translate, to partly translate this Greek word thea here. Thea uh, Which uh, uh, in the King James was translated given by inspiration. So it uses that phrase. It translates the, the Greek word there, uh, given by, it translates the words thea as given by inspiration. But in the Latin Vulgate, it was used this word, inspiro, which came into English as inspiration. Uh, this word, "theaustas" we'll see in a moment, it's it's the first occurrence of the word in Greek. So Paul says, all scripture is theaustas." Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, there's no way to look back at other Greek documents before this or other Greek literature to know what that means because... Uh, this is the first time it's used. We assume Paul invented the word, maybe, that he brought this word together. It's a combination of the word God, theos, and the word breath or breathe, or it's the word spirit, so it's God breathe, we'll see that. So I say number two, it may not be the best term to translate here in spyro. Because inspiro means to breathe in. Spiro is breath and in is breathe in. And uh, the word theanusta speaks of breathing out. In fact, one famous biblical scholar by the name of B.B. Warfield, he he said that uh, Jerome chose the wrong word. He chose the Latin word expiro. There's a Latin word that means breathe out. And he said, we should be talking about all Scripture is given by expiration, not not inspiration. But anyway, that's what what Jerome chose. and, And we understand we use that term theologically, inspiration to speak of this act of God whereby he gave us Scripture. What about the definition of the doctrine of inspiration? Here's the Bill Combs simple definition. God's superintendence of the writers of Scripture, so they wrote the Word of God. So God superintended the writers of Scripture. So when Paul wrote Romans to the church at Rome, God was superintending Paul, so that Paul was writing a real letter to the Romans, but he so superintended him in a way that's not easy to understand, that he wrote the Word of God, he wrote what God wanted to be written. There's a lot of bigger definitions. Here's one from the Ryrie Study Bible, and you can find plenty of them around, which is Ryrie's definition. Inspiration is God's superintending. See, that's a common common word that's used to try to describe what God was doing. Superintending of human authors so that using their own individual personalities... And that sometimes says personalities and styles. So when you look at Scripture, it may be hard to tell in the NIV because it's an English translation and so forth, but if you look at the original Greek or the original Hebrew, you can tell that these books are written by different people. I can tell if I got a letter from my mother versus a letter from my wife. You know, the styles and so forth are, are somewhat different. And so when you read Paul's writings, it's different from John. There's a clear difference in style and and so forth. And so he's saying they're using their own individual personality styles. They composed and recorded without error. So the scripture is inerrant without error in the words of the original autographs, his revelation of Adam. It's got a little redundancy there because what are autographs? Autographs is uh, from Greek and it means... Self-writing, someone is writing this. So an autograph is the original document. So Paul wrote Romans and sent it off. That was the autograph. It was the ori- so an autograph. is the original. You don't. He doesn't need the word original autographs in his definition. In the words, of the autographs. It's enough because an autograph is an original document. So uh, inspiration is God superintending so that they produce the Word of God. What is the evidence uh, for this? Um, um, come back to uh, use that one right now. Um, let's talk about um uh, Scriptural evidence. Sorry about that. Scriptural evidence. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 is the main verse we're all familiar with, I think. All scripture is given by inspiration. That's the King James. The New American Standard says all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, I say see here the phrase given by inspiration or inspired by God is more literally, probably God breathed, something like that. Thea Nustas, God breathed it out. D, all scripture is God breathed, there's the NIV, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. The ESV says all scripture is breathed out by God, same idea. So they're trying to get back to that word there. Um, um, inspiration, copies, and translations. So I say here, number two, inspiration is ultimately confined only to the original writings themselves, what are called the autographs. For instance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted, by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is is the Lord's command. So what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that was the Lord's command, that was inspired. So what the original authors wrote, what Moses wrote, what Jeremiah wrote, what David wrote, what John wrote what Mark wrote that's those are those autographs those original writings God superintended them so they wrote without error and that's a miraculous thing it takes a miracle right to write without error so that was a miraculous work of the holy spirit superintending these writers to write this without error but B I say here Copies are not technically inspired in the technical sense since they are not God-breathed. That is, the miracle doesn't continue when somebody made a copy of Paul's epistle to the Romans. If somebody in Rome made a copy of Paul's epistle to the Romans, which they did, God didn't make sure that they didn't misspell a word or leave a word out accidentally. You know, God wasn't doing miracles every time somebody copied the scripture. And the same thing goes for translations as well. So technically, in a technical sense, God-breathed only applies to what the authors originally composed, the autographs. However, we say accurate copies and translations are still authoritative We still call them the word of God because they preserve the essential message of the autographs. So even though uh, we have these translations, if they're faithful, accurate translations, generally we say, well, this is the word of God because they preserve the message of the autographs. Some would therefore suggest that it's valid to speak of accurate copies and translations as inspired in a secondary or derivative sense and then to that extent a copy or translation faithfully reproduces the original text so some would say it's valid to speak of these copies as inspired in a secondary or derivative sense and that to an extent a copy or translation faithfully reproduces the original text it derives inspiration from the original that's why copies can be called the word of God so this is a tricky thing it's a little tricky thing because technically only those originals are really technically inspired. But sometimes we we say we pick up our Bibles and say, "This is the inspired Word of God." You know what I'm saying? And uh, so, yes, in the sense that you know an accurate translation is reflects the original, and therefore it is the Word of God. Now, this gets us into trouble, and it's gotten into us into a lot of trouble over the years because preachers held up their King James versions and said, this is the inspired and errant word of God. Well, if we keep saying that, I mean, that means the King James translation is without error. It's inspired error, you know so you have to distinguish You know, even though we hold up our Bibles and say this is the word of God I never hold up my Bible and say this is the inspired I don't think inspired our word of God you know we're, it's, a, it's a funny thing about the language here we understand what we're, we're talking about here we have to be careful somehow somebody got my slides out of order I don't know maybe my wife got in here and didn't I don't slide so let's look at take a look at Matthew 26 uh, 65 I have up here and I'm talking about a word here, a word ekate. Greek word ekete. Now this is a Greek word, a verb, that means to possess or have or take. So it's often translated I have. Now it's not the helping verb have, like it's not like I have gone. That's a helping verb. We're talking about a verb like I I have a car. I possess a car I own a car I have so it's to own or possess something or uh, take something as we translate here take something so the question is in Matthew twenty-seven sixty-five: is this ekate an imperative or a command is it an imperative or a command did I write that uh, well that's really stupid isn't it <laughs> I meant is this, uh, is, this, is this a statement or is it a command but I, I guess I do have imperative command there but that's fine and indicative or statement I meant to have it up there in the front to say we're trying to decide about ekata. but there's the two possibilities Ekata is imperative or command or is it indicative or statement so it's, is, the, is this stating something or is it commanding something now, why, why, why those two differences? That's because in Greek, this could be either one. So Greek, the same spelling of the same word can be a statement you have. You, you know, it can be a statement, an indicative, or it can be a command. And you see that reflected in two translations. The NIV says, take a guard. That's, an, that's a command. That's imperative. Pilate says, take a guard. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. Now remember the context here is that Jesus has been tried and convicted and crucified and he's in the tomb. And the religious leaders come to Pilate and they say, you know, this guy was the deceiver, this Jesus. He was a real deceiver. And he said that uh um, he would rise again. he claimed that he would rise again and you know what's going to happen is his disciples are going to come and steal his body out of the tomb and then everybody will claim he's risen again you know and that'll be the story that we got. So we need to you know do something about that. So one possibility is that Pilate says, okay, take a car you 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 you, you Jewish leaders, You take a guard. Uh, Take some Roman soldiers. Take some of my soldiers, and go to the tomb and just make sure that you know they can't steal the body. The other possibility is what the New American Standard says. It's taken as indicative. Remember, both are possible. The Same word in Greek can mean the one. You have a guard. That is, the pilot is saying you have your own soldiers the Jewish uh, leaders at the temple had their own soldiers. They had a police force. They had soldiers that kept guard in the temple, on the temple mount. Levitical priests who were soldiers. They had a captain of the temple guard. He's mentioned in the book of Acts later on and so forth. He was usually a son of a high priest. And so Pilate is saying either, take some of my Roman soldiers here, or, get some of your own. That is, take a guard, take some of my soldiers, which is one thing. Or, you have your own soldiers. Which one is it? And, there's debate about this. I mean, I looked at a couple commentators, and they debate this. You know, um, some people say it means, uh, take a guard. That is, take some of my soldiers. And, uh, and, um, take them to the tomb now later on in Matthew 28 you remember the religious leaders come to the soldiers and they say listen, you know his body's gone they say listen tell tell the governor, tell the boss man that you fell asleep and that's what happened, his disciples came and stole his body you tell them that and so they take some money and they do it and so there was a debate about, okay, would these Romans be willing to take some money from these Jewish leaders, and they say, and we'll protect you from the governor. Well, of course, Romans—they just, as we understand, Roman soldiers fall asleep guarding a prisoner. It's kind of like that's the end of your life, friend. <laughs> so, would these Roman soldiers be willing to do that? You know, it doesn't. So some commentators say no. That NIV can't be right, take a guard. Some say yes, it is right. Some say no, it's more likely take your own soldiers. And that kind of thing. So which which is which is the inspired word of God here? Tell me. Is it the NIV or the New American Standard? False. What?
1: False.
0: False. <laughs> Well, in that technical sense, neither one is, is there? The inspired is ekete. That's what Matthew wrote. He wrote ekete. So we know what the inspired word of God is. Now, what we have here is a question of interpretation, don't we? And so we have to interpret. And our interpretation is not necessarily inerrant, is it? So translators have to decide. And they decided. They decided one way and they decided another way but there's no miraculous work going on with translators they're doing the best they can, they're making decisions based upon how they understand the languages and the context and what's going on around them so in a technical sense, neither one of those translations is inspired it's the Greek ekotem that's inspired so I'm trying to make my point, we just need to be careful about what we say is inspired that we don't get people to think that, you know, it's my translation inspired and this other translation is not. This usually comes up with the King James problem, as well, and we'll talk about the King James issue here a little later on. Let's talk about Roman numeral three here. What are other names for the Bible? Well, we're familiar with these, I'm sure. Um, I say our English word the Bible is derived from the Greek word byblos, which means a book. Now that was originally a scroll. So to us, a book is what's called technically a codex down below there. A bound book like this. We say, this is a book. Well, not in the ancient world. In the ancient world, those scrolls were called books, byblos. That was the first book. This codex was invented sometime during the first century at the end of the first century so about at the end of the writing of the New Testament it's generally agreed that the New Testament and certainly the Old Testament but the New Testament was originally written on scrolls written on scrolls so Paul wrote Romans on a scroll and sent it and so forth, these were individual books written on scrolls so we get our word Bible from that Greek word Biblos We also use the word scripture. That comes from the Greek word graphe. Of course, we have all kinds of words like graphic from that, meaning writing. So in the Greek world, the word graphe meant writing. But as I say, it's used exclusively in the New Testament for inspired writings of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So in the New Testament, graphe is never translated writing It's always scripture because it's holy writing. It's inspired writing. It's never just human writing. It's never used. It's used 50 times. It's used two times of the New Testament here. Uh, I say, first of all, it's used most of the time of the Old Testament. So most of the time in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about scripture, it's referring back to the Old Testament because the New Testament was in the process of being written at that time. So like, Romans one two, Paul says the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy graphe, the graphi of the scriptures. So uh, it's used in the Old Testament, but it is used in the New Testament twice. Here is Second Peter three sixteen. Peter says in he, Paul, writes the same, excuse me, same in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. So you see, he's referring to Paul as writings as scripture because he uses the word other there. He doesn't say they distort Paul's letters as they do the scriptures. That would be distinguishing Paul from the Scriptures. He says, they distort they distort Paul's letters just as they do the other scriptures. So Paul's letters, Paul says, uh, Peter says, are scripture. Uh, it's also used a uh, one more time in first Timothy five eighteen, where Paul says there that he quotes the Old Testament and New Testament verse together. He says he says, For the scripture says 1 Timothy five eighteen. For the Scripture says, "I can't remember the exact words, but it's, it's uh, I, I get the King James coming in here, but <laughs> do not muzzle the ox while it's treading, while it's threshing." You know, the Old Testament had a command, a law that said, when you have an ox and you're out and he's on, and he's on the threshing floor and he's threshing this, you can't muzzle it. You got to let the ox eat what he wants to as he's going along. You know. And so he says, "For Scripture says, "You can't muzzle the ox that's treading, and the laborer is worth his wages." And that is a quote from Luke 10:7, interestingly enough, "The laborer is worth his wages." And Paul, the words there in Paul are the exact same Greek words as Luke 10.7. So he's referring to Luke's writing as Scripture. So it's used of the Old Testament, mostly in the New Testament, and a couple times of the New Testament as Scripture. It's also called the Word of God. We're familiar with that. This term is used both in the Old Testament and New Testament for revelation that comes from God, most often in oral form, though occasionally in written form. Now, that's something we're not familiar with, that's what I just said there. If you look at the phrase, the word of God, if you were just to take a concordance and look at it in the New Testament, almost all the time, it's actually of something spoken. They spoke to them the word of God, commonly in Acts. They spoke the word of God. So it's talking about giving the gospel. But occasionally, it's in written form, too, like Exodus 24, 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, the word of God John 10.35 Jesus said if he called them gods to whom the word of God came that's the written form and scripture cannot be set aside so today it's a a synonym so we use the term Bible, scripture, the word of God synonymously don't call these terms and then Old and New Testaments so the Bible that we know of is composed of two testaments This uh, word testament comes from the Latin terms withus testamentum and Noam testamentum, which mean old and new covenants. And the Latin is a translation of the Greek diatheke, which means covenant, the old covenant and the new covenant. So technically the the Greek is, is thinking about a covenant, but then the Latin comes to mean a testament. It can be a covenant. But then, early writers began to think about, you know, we can refer to this, this, this these two parts of the Bible as the Old Covenant, because it's mostly about the Mosaic Covenant, you know, and the New Covenant, because we're in the New Covenant era. And so, they took those terms covenant, New, covenant, New Testament, Old Testament, and, and Clement of Alexandria, an early church father, he was the first to use them as to say, okay, there's the, Christ, the Jewish scriptures, that's the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the Christian scriptures, that's the New. So they make up the Bible. What books are in the Bible? Well, let's look at that. We know that they were written over a period of about 1,500 years. Moses, the Exodus is the year 1446, so Moses is writing sometime around that period, 1450 or something. And then the book of Revelation is written, you know, sometime at the end of the first century, so 1550 or so years. Uh, The backgrounds of the writers, there were all kinds of different people, kings, statesmen, Daniel, you know, herdsmen, Amos, fishermen, priests, prophets, tax collectors, rabbi, physicians, Many of the books are anonymous. Remember that—that uh, that is, we're not actually told who wrote Matthew. Now, there's a strong tradition that it was the apostle, the, the disciple, Apostle Matthew, and and when uh, so we're not that the authors are not named. Paul puts his name to all his 13 epistles, and so he, you know, it's not anonymous. But many of the writings, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say who he is. He doesn't tell us who he is. What about the location of writing? Well Palestine using that word uh, for Israel and the surrounding areas most of the Old Testament would have been written there Italy, Paul wrote the prison epistles from Rome, Greece from Corinth he wrote Romans Asia Minor, from Ephesus he wrote 1 Corinthians Egypt, Jeremiah, Mesopotamia, Daniel and so forth there's all kinds of different writing. There's historical writings, legal writings, the law, poetry, psalms, prophecy, prophets, letters like Paul's letters, gospels, wisdom literature. We think of you know, of Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and sometimes apocalyptic. That might not be the best term for revelation, but it's often called that. The languages of the Bible are Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and we'll talk about those a little more here uh, later on. The books of the Old Testament, there are 39 books. Now, the Roman Catholic Bibles contain uh, some extra books called the Apocrypha that we'll uh, talk about in just a moment here that uh, they uh, added to their canon Roman Catholic Church 1546 adopted some additional books, 12 additional books that they have in their Old Testament that we don't have Protestants don't have, we'll talk about that what went on there why was that Um, the, the, the books of the that's the English Bible so if you look at our English Bibles, 39 books uh, 27 New Testament, 66 books, right? So 39 books in the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible contains 24. So if you had a Hebrew Bible, brought our Hebrew, my Hebrew Bible here, and you looked at the number of, <clears throat> look at the table of contents, you'd just see 24 books. Why is that? That's because the, the Jews uh, group their Bibles a little differently, as I have here. They have the same books, same material, same exact material. The uh, Christians just took over the Hebrew Bible and so forth, but they, they uh, grouped them differently. They group them into three groups, the Law, the Torah, the Prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the writings Kethubim. And they call that the Tanakh. So they make an acronym out of the words T, Torah, N, Nevi'im, K, Ketuvim. They make a made-up word, T, N, K, and they call it Tanakh. Or the Tanakh, sometimes Tanakh. So if you go into a Jewish bookstore, I suppose, If you go and ask for a copy of the Tanakh, you're going to get a Jewish translation, an English translation. If you you ask for an English Tanakh, they're going to know what you want. You want a Jewish translation, something done by Jews usually of the Old Testament. And there's the arrangement, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And see, there's 24 there. Well, the law is the same as what we call the law or the Pentateuch. Genesis through Deuteronomy. But their prophets is much larger. They call Joshua and Judges the prophets. They're called the former prophets and the latter prophets. And you see the number starts diminishing right away because they don't have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. It's just Samuel. They don't have 1 Kings and 2 Kings. It's just Kings. Same material. They just don't divide it up in different two sections. And then you look down at the latter prophets number 13 to 12 they have all the 12 minor prophets, but they're just all together. So there's 12. You know, we lose 11 books there and so forth. So they have the same writings, and then they have it divided into the poetical books. The, the writings are the poetical books, the scrolls, the five rolls or scrolls, the megaloth, and the historical books. So they have Psalms, Prophets, Job, then they have five rolls. Those books are in that particular order because they read those books in the Jewish synagogue on a regular schedule at certain times of the year. Like Passover, they read the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. At Pentecost, they read Ruth. And then Lamentations and Ecclesiastes, they read the Feast of Tabernacles and Esther at the Feast of Purim. So they have a regular reading schedule. And then historical books, they have Daniel. We think of Daniel as a prophet. He's in the prophetic books, you know, but they have him in the historical section and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, one book Ezra and Nehemiah, not, they don't separate it and they don't have 1st and 2nd Chronicles so it's the same material, but that's the way it's grouped. and we can see that is referred to in the New Testament Luke 24, says this is Jesus, Jesus says to them this is what I told you while I was still with you Everything must be, fu- must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms. So he has the first division, the law, the second division, the prophets, but then he has the psalm. But notice the first book in the writings, in the third, ketuvim. The first book in that ketuvim, the writings, is the psalms. So sometimes the Psalms is a way of just referring to the third division. So Jesus is referring to all three parts of the Bible here. Same thing in Matthew 23, 35. Jesus says, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, of course, Abel is murdered in what book? Genesis. And then we have this unknown person to us, <laughs> unless you're really familiar with these names in the Bible, Zechariah, son of Berechiah. There's a lot of those names like that. I had, a, I had this professor one time who would give these tests, you know, it was all like a historical books, and you can pick out all kinds of names you never even heard of, you know, and say, who is this, you know? And you really have to, you'd have to really know every little sentence to know. This is the person is mentioned one time in the historical book somewhere. So this Zechariah, son of Berechiah is mentioned in 2 Chronicles. And notice what the last book in the writings is 2 Chronicles. So this is Jesus saying, From Genesis, like we say, Genesis to Revelation, you know. You can study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We say the from the beginning to the end. So Jesus is doing the same thing. He's saying from Genesis to Second Chronicles, we'd say Genesis to Malachi if we were doing the Old Testament, wouldn't we? But he says, From Genesis to Second Chronicles, this is this is your history. You murdered the prophets and so forth. So we know he's very familiar with the the Hebrew Old Testament. The English grouping, of course, is what we're very familiar with. This is influenced by what's called the Septuagint. We'll talk about that. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Vulgate, the Latin translation. So we have the law, then we have the historical books, poetry, and then prophecy and so forth. So we're very familiar with that. Then the books of the New Testament we have 27 of those and they're grouped as we see here uh gospels and acts then the epistles 13 pauline epistles at least they are named uh he has has his name attached to them he says he wrote them what are called general epistles um and then the apocalypse or the book of Revelation. Well, let's look at page five. How do we know which books should be in the Bible? That's the canonicity. Canonicity is the doctrine of which books should be in the Bible. Let's talk about the word canon itself first. The word canon comes from a Greek word, kanon. And that Greek word means like a yardstick. Literally like a yardstick or a ruler. Or it can be used, like we use the word you know, rule for a principle, a principle. or somebody. So it means a rule or a standard by which something is judged, a canon. A book is said to be canonical if it's judged worthy to be included in the Bible. So we say we have... 66 books in our canon in the canonical books these are the canonical judged to be the word of God what's the definition of canonicity? canonicity is the historical process by which the spirit of God led the church to recognize those writings that were genuinely inspired this historical process produced the canon we have today so the books were written by different authors over a pretty good period of time, maybe as much as 50 years in the New Testament. Uh, Some say James is the first book written, maybe so. 47, maybe 45, 49, sometime. And uh, Revelation, the last book, so it could be as much as 45, 50 years, maybe. And then... uh, they have to be sort of collected into a group, recognized. They have to be recognized as as inspired, because other people were writing things. Other people were writing things in the New Testament age besides the apostles, the, the, the writings we have. So you've got to differentiate those. Let's talk about C, Canonicity and Inspiration. It's not the canonizing process that makes the books inspired. They were inspired the moment they came from the hands of the authors. So Paul's epistle to the Romans was inspired the moment it came off his pen or it was sent to the Romans. Inspiration number two indicates how the Bible received its authority. Tells, canonization tells how the Bible received its acceptance. Canonization, canonicity deals with the recognition and collection of God, the God-inspired books. So when we talk about canonicity, we're just talking about recognizing what God has inspired. The early church came to recognize the 66 books. Actually, they were concerned with the 27, as we'll see. Because I say about Old Testament canon, the church uh, basically accepted the canon of Judaism. We can see this is correct since Jesus placed his stamp of approval. Now, we could go into a lot of details about how do we know these 39 books are in the Old Testament canon. But I'm just simplifying here to say one reason we know is because Jesus put his stamp on it. And we've seen how he put his stamp on it by those verses. Uh, Luke 24, 44. Jesus talks about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he never says, hey, you know that book of Job? That shouldn't be in there. He never said (laughs) anything. He never questioned the recognized Jewish canon. He could have. He could have corrected at any time. He wanted to. He never did. He didn't have to. Because God had faithfully preserved accurately to Jesus' day, the Old Testament, the inspired 39 books of the Old Testament. And we saw it again in Matthew 23, 35 where refers to the the, two part, the the entire Hebrew canon as from Genesis to the 2nd Chronicles so Jesus accepted the Old Testament he never questioned it uh, the Jewish canon was well, well recognized in Jesus' day and the early church did the early church didn't debate about that canon, they didn't question that canon now the Roman Catholic Church in 1546, that's a little bit later 1500 years later they come along and say, hey, we want to add some books to the Old Testament. Which they did, 12 books. We'll see about that in a moment. What about the New Testament canon? The 27 books. One, the Holy Spirit guided the church over a period of several hundred years so that only the inspired books were included in the New Testament canon. So, how did they do that? Did they, how did they think about this? How did they recognize, you know, these writings? Well, if you read the church fathers, you see certain principles that they talk about, that they used, that they thought about. This is a human process for recognition. God, we believe, was superintending this, again, guiding this process. But the most important principle was called apostolicity. They were looking for books written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. Now, everything we know is that Paul's epistles were accepted immediately. They were accepted immediately. There's no one in the early church, no writing at all, that says, well, you know, that's 2 Corinthians, I don't know about that. Nobody says anything about Paul's letters. Now, I'm convinced that Paul collected or kept a copy of his own letters. Now, the reason I'm convinced of that is, well, I can just mention two reasons here, is if you're writing to the Corinthians and they're disputing what you're saying, (laughs) you know, we do that today. We keep copies. I keep copies of emails we send to people because they'll come back and they'll say, well, you know, you said this. Well, okay, here's the email. Here's what I actually said. So they're disputing in 1 Corinthians what Paul says. He knows they're a troublesome group, so he's going to keep copies. And we know that ancient writers kept copies. There's just abundant evidence of this. All Latin writers, Greek writers, they all kept copies. They even published copies. This went on right on through the Middle Ages. Erasmus, we'll get to Erasmus. Erasmus kept copies of all the ever letter he ever wrote. All the people who sent him letters, and he published them all in his own day. <laughs> so I'm sure Paul kept copies of, the, of his own letters, so it was, that would be pretty easy, you know, and so forth. So the Gospels, the Gospels were, uh, the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark, who was an associate, we think, I believe it was written by Mark, an associate of Paul and also Peter and so forth. Matthew, you know, was one of the apostles. Luke, associate of the Apostle Paul and so forth so they were looking for letters that were written that was one key thing they were looking they talk about something relevant to the whole church not just to something uh, one small group in the church Orthodoxy conforms to Orthodox doctrine now this is kind of a circular argument here so you have Paul's 13 epistles except that immediately, You've got the Gospels accepted immediately. And so they form clearly right at the beginning. Just here's, here's what, here's orthodox doctrine, here's correct doctrine. And you use those to judge other works. So here's The Shepherd of Hermas, a book that was written, an early book that some people thought highly of. Uh, I mean, some people think highly of John Piper's books, you know, I mean, John MacArthur's books, you know. So there was a lot of books written that people thought highly of, but the question is, you know, are they orthodox and so forth? And so they they looked at books written by others and they, well, these don't conform to orthodox doctrine. So they're looking for that. They're looking for what they call, this is later on, when you get to the second, third centuries, if there's any question, they're saying, have these books been used since early times in the worship of the church and so forth? so gradually, you know, we have writings of church fathers, and some of them write out and tell us the books that they're using and so forth. Uh, and but nobody, nobody in the early, in the really early church, takes time to say, "Now these are the twenty-seven books." They'll just they don't they're not quite as specific. Of that. They talk about books they're using, they're reading, and so forth. Until you get until about the year three hundred, then you have people. Just laying it out and saying, and the Athanasius and so forth. Here's here's the books, and you know, and you can't change that or anything like that. So these are the the twenty seven books. So okay, that's good. But what about you and I? How do we know? How can we be sure that the church didn't make a mistake? Maybe they, maybe they added something that shouldn't have been in there or maybe they missed something. How do we, how do we know? The canon and the believer, page 6. Um, by the 4th century, the general consensus of the church had settled on our present New Testament canon, but what about their choice? Was it correct? Number two, our own individual certainty that the 66 books of the Bible are the Word of God comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds called sometimes called the witness of the Spirit this is an aspect of what's called the illuminating ministry of the Spirit the chief verse here is 1 Corinthians 2.14 the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they me, discerned only through the Spirit. So I say here the unbeliever is basically hostile to God's Word. I mean, they may say, oh, yeah, that's the Bible, that's a good book, and all that, but they're not putting themselves under it. <laughs> they have hostility to what they read, and they're not going to accept everything generally. The unbeliever is hostile, and that's what it says here. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And they can't understand the significance of these things because they're only discerned through the Spirit. So I say the Holy Spirit enables the believer to see the true character of Scripture. The Holy Spirit gives us certainty that what the Bible reveals about itself, that it is the Word of God, is true. The Holy Spirit is not revealing anything to us, only illuminating our minds to see the truth that's already been revealed. Thus, when God gives His revelation, we see He also gives to believers, along with it, a certainty that it, it is His revelation. So, God created us when He created man and woman in the image of God. He created us in the image of God so that we recognize God's voice. Human beings were created to recognize. When God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, they didn't say, hey, who's that? They knew it was God. They recognized the voice of God. Now, unfortunately, depravity, sin, messes that up. But regeneration restores that thing to us. In regeneration when we're saved we we begin to recognize the voice of God again. So as we read the Bible it witnesses to us, yes this is true. This is God speaking. i say in three, as you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit witnesses that a particular writing is the word of God as we read other books we come to see that they're part of one divine revelation a systematic study of all 66 books will lead us to the conclusion that they are an organic whole the canon of scripture these factors were at work in the early church and ultimately caused it to render the canon closed they enable every believer to come to the same conclusion now we may not realize that but that's how it works you know if you weren't raised in a Christian home let's say you were saved later on, you know, the first thing we do is give somebody a Bible who's saved in our church. In fact, we give it to anybody who doesn't have a Bible when they come and say, here's a Bible. Take it and keep it. And if a person is saved, as they read that Bible, they come to realize, yes, this is the Word of God. And, uh, you know, they don't understand it all at first. They don't know all that. They don't know if there's 66 books or... They wouldn't know for his 96 books. You know, they accept that we're telling them the truth. We're the church. But they, they, they have time to reflect on that and see that and study that. And the Holy Spirit witnesses their spirit. Yes, this is the Word of God. And you come to accept that. And that's a universal thing. It works. I mean, think since the Protestant Reformation. 500 years. I mean, I just don't meet anybody. I've never met anybody. I don't think I've hardly ever heard anybody. I'm sure there's somebody like that who says, "Yeah, you know, I've been uh, in this community Bible church for a few years, but you know, I just don't think that Book of uh, Ecclesiastes should be in the Bible." I've never run across that. I've never heard of a Christian say that. You see, I mean, we we look, we have the Bible, we accept the Bible. We I may mean, have things that are hard to understand, but. There comes with us, as we are regenerated and born again, an acceptance and we recognize God speaking to us in the Bible. And so it works. It works. Now, we don't always agree about what it means, <laughs> do we? We don't always agree what ekete means in Matthew, there. Translators don't always agree. We agree this is the Word of God. You know, I accept this this book and these these truths, and you know it's it's just a wonderful thing that as people are saved and brought into the church and discipled, they accept. You know, whether they're Presbyterians, Assembly of God, you know, Baptists, uh, Methodists. You know, if they if they're really born again people, they will accept the Bible. 66 books as the word of God and so that's not the source of our differences we can differ over how do you interpret certain books so um, so that's how we as individuals tend to get this assurance at first we're taught this, we're told this but we come to believe it because the spirit is working in us to witness to this truth that we're taught that this is the Word of God. So if you have questions anytime, just feel free to raise I didn't say that, feel free to raise your hand and have question uh, as we go along here. Anything else tonight? Well, you didn't fall asleep yet, so I guess we're okay at least for right now. But we'll see how goes. It- because in the future we'll get more into the actual meat of this but I just wanted to lay this foundation so next week we'll look at the Apocrypha and find out why our church and Protestant churches don't accept those 12 books that, and what those books are about in fact I, I was going to read I was going to talk to you about it. a story from the Apocrypha called Susanna If I have a daughter named Susanna <laughs> yeah okay her name comes from the apocrypha. I don't know if you know that or not. That's us it's a, it's a
1: it's <laughs> well, a where? Uh-huh. Well,
0: where? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a it was a, it's a it's a uh, popular name. It was popular because of the story of Susanna in the Bible. And uh, so we'll
1: just, we just like the song. Yeah, yeah, those we are uh, <laughs>
0: well, now we're going to find out the real truth next week. All right. Thanks. We'll see you next week. So we'll start at uh, 7.15.